All right. Uh, it's great to be together this morning. My name is Glenn. Um, if I don't know you, I sure look forward to getting to know you. But I don't know if you have noticed, but we live in the age of the warning label. I don't know if you know that, but uh, it seems like everything, whether it's medicine or a coffee cup, comes with a warning label, right? The grave danger that could come to you if you somehow misuse this product. It actually dates back all the way to 1966 when cigarettes were the first thing that we're required to put a health warning right on the package. But then things kind of stepped up from there in 1994, and some of you may remember this. That was when McDonald's was actually sued by a a customer who spilled hot coffee on themselves. And so because of that, uh, McDonald's began to add the warning label onto all of their hot coffee cups that said, warning content may be hot. Seemed kind of obvious, but that's uh, what they needed to do. So on the one hand, I'm thankful that there are some warnings that protect us from different things, but it seems like stuff has gotten a little out of control and see if you agree with me because I've got some warning labels uh, that I think might just be a little over the top. Tell me if you agree. Like this one on a wheelbarrow says, caution, not intended for highway use. Like you were going to jump in that and commute down Highway 99 on your way to work. Or how about this one? This is on a dog medication. So a medication for dogs. It says this, warning may cause drowsiness. Use with care when operating a car. Do a lot of you have dogs operating cars? All right. How about this one? This, actually, this one makes sense. On the side of a Chipotle truck, drivers do not carry burritos. So leave them alone. Leave those drivers alone. How about this one? On a drill, a carpenter's drill, it says, this product not intended for use as a dental drill, which I guess is good to know. Then one more, it says this. On a stroller, it says, caution, remove child before folding. Which here on Father's Day, let's just admit, dads, that is for us because we would either forget or try to save time or something like that. Well, hey, as we continue in a series in the book of Daniel, that's what we've been studying this summer, um, you could say that our passage today contains one of the Bible's most famous warnings, one of the most famous warning letter, labels, because the finger of God actually miraculously appears and writes a warning on the side of a wall that is specific to a king of Babylon. And yet here's what I want to suggest is that writing that he wrote to Belshazzar, king of Babylon, is so relevant for my life and for your life today. And so we are going to dig into that from the book of Daniel chapter 5. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to open it up to Daniel chapter 5. Hopefully you received some message notes when you came in, and we are going to jump into those. As you're turning to Daniel 5, let me help kind of set the stage for what is going on in this passage, because the context and kind of the history, a lot of history in today's passage is really significant. So the time now at the beginning of Daniel chapter 5 is 539 BC. That's significant because Daniel, at this point, he went to Babylon as a 17-year-old. Now he is an old man. And so he'd been living there for a long time. It's actually 25 years that have passed since the end of chapter 4. So if you were here last week, you remember Steve talked us to this big transformation that takes place in King Nebuchadnezzar's life. He was the most powerful of the Babylonian kings. And though he was the most powerful man in the world, he understands that he needs to humble himself uh, before God and and starts to follow after God. But 25 years have passed at least um, since 
that time, the location for what we're going to see, the setting, um, is still uh, the, the king's palace. But at this point, Nebuchadnezzar is dead. Nebuchadnezzar is gone. After powerful King Nebuchadnezzar dies, there's a series of like three or four of his uh, kids and his relatives that come in and serve as king, but it's just like one disaster after another. None of them seem to really uh, take. There's lots of problems until finally a guy by the name of Nabonidus, this guy right here, actually Nabonidus takes the throne, and that's a carving that we have, dates back to that time of King Nabonidus. And so he takes the throne. But ever since, Nebuch- uh, ever since Nebuchadnezzar's death, um, Babylon has been losing influence. It was once the most powerful nation in all of the world, the number one superpower, but they'd been kind of losing influence over the years. And there was a new global superpower that was on the rise. They are known as the Medes and the Persians two kind of countries and and armies that have come together, the Medes and the Persians, and now they are threatening Babylon's power uh, as the the power of the world. So Nabonidus, King Nabonidus, is like the military ruler, the political ruler, and so he takes his armies out of Babylon, and he goes out to kind of defend the territory out at the borders because these Medes and Persian armies are advancing. When he leaves, he appoints a guy by the name of Belshazzar to be kind of his co-king. So in Daniel 5, we're going to read the story about this guy by the name of Belshazzar, and you need to know that's how he became uh, the king. And so Nabonidus and Belshazzar are kind of co-kings over Babylon, and at the point of this um, literally the armies are surrounding uh, Babylon at this point. Now, for those of you that are interested in this kind of thing, it's really interesting because Daniel chapter 5 is actually one of the passages that for years, Bible critics and skeptics of the Bible always pointed to as one of the places that see the Bible doesn't match history. And the reason they said that was because Belshazzar is listed in the Bible, but he's not necessarily listed in the, the, the other Babylonian history. In fact, we're specifically told that Nabonidus is the last king. King of Babylon. So people pointed and said, see, I told you, the Bible's not true. It doesn't match history. And that was a strong argument for a long time until um, some archaeologists discovered this little treasure. This is known as the Nabonidus Cylinder. So this actually explains that relationship. It's a, a Babylonian or secular document that explains that relationship that I just talked about between Nabonidus and Belshazzar. So Belshazzar is the king. And as Daniel 5 begins, the Medes and the Persians are approaching rapidly. The threat is very high. In fact, their armies already defeated Nabonidus out on the different borders. And now literally, the armies are surrounding the city of Babylon, just wondering what is going to happen. And so the Babylonian nation is headed for trouble. Disaster is right around the corner. And just a little glimpse into the character of King Belshazzar. What does he do when his nation faces this great peril, he throws a party. And that's where chapter 5 begins. So let's check this out together. Uh, Amazing story. It goes like this. 
Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for thousands of his nobles and drank wine with them. So see, in the face of danger, Belshazzar ignores all of the the warning signs, ignores all of the the trouble that is surrounding them. And when he should have been leading his nation, when he should have been getting ready to defend the city, instead, what does he do? He invites all of the A-listers from around Babylon to come to this great party. And it is a rager. In, In fact, the word, the Aramaic word wine there implies a great deal of wine. Verse 2, while Belshazzar was drinking his great deal of wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the kings and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. And they drank the wine. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold, silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So not only is this party a rager, but it is a blasphemous rager. For some unknown reason, we're not exactly told why, Belshazzar has this idea that he will go to the place where they, uh, can, they keep the, uh, the, the goblets and the, the things that were taken from the temple in Jerusalem and bring them back and, and use them as a part of his party. Maybe just to show how cool and progressive he is, maybe just to, as a symbol of his pride, we don't know. But he goes and takes these goblets that were dedicated to God, specifically for God, and he uses them to party it up and to raise a toast to all of these idols, all of these Babylonian idols. It should stand out to us as that is not the way this is supposed to go down. You may remember that that this idea was kind of introduced to us way back in chapter 1, because remember when Babylon comes and defeats uh, Judah and Jerusalem, they take not only some of the people captive, but it says specifically that they took articles from the temple of God back to Babylon. It was their way of saying, like, not only are we, you know, going to defeat you, but it's their way of saying, our God is bigger than your God. Our God is greater than your God. So to prove it, we're going to steal his furniture. We're going to take some of the place settings, and we're going to bring them back, and we're going to use them. And now that's what they're doing. They're using God's goblets to toast uh, their Babylonian gods. And it's quite a scene and to see them not only ignoring now the danger of the armies that are approaching, but they're ignoring the warnings that God had given them time and time again through these years when they are in Babylon. Verse 5 says this, so then suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstands in the royal palace. And the king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. So what happens actually in these verses, it just terrifies Belshazzar and it's actually recorded or uh, pictured in a painting from uh, Rembrandt. Rembrandt paints this scene of this hand that comes and writes this message on the side of the wall. And so God breaks in miraculously and and he writes this, this, uh, this thing on the wall and Belshazzar is terrified. After all, there is no context, even though, you know, it's a party and they are probably plastered and he writes on the plaster. Those things don't necessarily go together. The idea is, um, it's a surprise and he didn't expect it. 
Now, we're going to look at what um, the message says because it's significant to Belshazzar and it's significant to me and you as well. But I just want to say something about this kind of miraculous thing because it caught Belshazzar off guard that this hand appears and writes on the wall. But let me just say, I I know some of you might be thinking this because I think this stuff sometimes. You think, well, that seems pretty far-fetched right? That seems not only surprising, but it seems a little weird, a little strange. And if you think that that seems far-fetched, I think you're getting the point. That's part of what the author is trying to get to us and part of what God is trying to do. He's trying to say, this is not the ordinary. This is a significant event. This is God breaking into history. It's a miraculous event. And so it should cause us to think, wow, this is really different. The second thing that I think a lot of us think is, okay, so the finger of God breaks in and actually writes on the wall of the palace. And we think to myself, you know, if I had a message that I saw the finger of God right on the side of, you know, my house or my room, I would definitely obey that that message. And yet, let me just share a little bit about what the Bible says about specifically the finger of God. This is not the first place that we see the finger of God. It actually first shows up in the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 8, remember there's this battle going on between the Egyptians and Moses, and there's a plague that brings judgment on Pharaoh and his magicians that we're told in Exodus 8 comes from the finger of God. It speaks to God's power in Exodus chapter 8. So his finger represents his power. Then later on in the book of Exodus, in Exodus 31, we're told that specifically it's the finger of God that inscribes the stone tablets that we know uh, as the Ten Commandments. So God's law is said to be inscribed literally with the finger of God. And God's law is to remind us of wisdom and, and truth. Then in the New Testament, Jesus actually picks up this same theme, and in Luke chapter 11, Jesus has one of those experiences where he casts a demon out of this person, and Jesus specifically says that this demon was cast out with the finger of God. And so not only is Jesus there equating himself with God, this is Jesus saying, if it's God's finger, and God's finger is my finger here, but he speaks to this authority that he has and this authority that the finger of God has. And so we see power, truth, wisdom, authority, all connected to the finger of God. And we think to ourselves, if God only wrote me a message with those things, I would definitely obey it. Here's what you need to know. God has written us that message full of truth and authority and power, and we resist it and we think, you know, I'm not sure I want to follow that, especially when it, you know, challenges me or or contradicts the way that I like to look at life. And yet the Bible comes to us from the finger of God, and so it's meant to stand out from that as that. So there's this miraculous appearance. We have this miraculous appearance um, back to Belshazzar. So the the hand writes on the wall, and Belshazzar is terrified. He's pale. His knees are knocking. Uh, He calls all the wisest men to see if anybody can interpret what has been written on the side of the wall. We've seen this as a theme throughout the book of Daniel. They're always trying to find someone wise enough to interpret what's going on. None of them can do it. And so there's an older woman in the crowd. They call her a queen. Perhaps she was one of the wives of Nebuchadnezzar. We don't know exactly. But he says, well, she says, I remember in the old days, whenever we needed someone to interpret this stuff, there was a guy that we used to call who could always do it, and he happens to still be around. He's very old now, but his name is Daniel. And so Belshazzar calls for Daniel. He comes back to the palace, and and they begin to have this, this interaction. Belshazzar 
is so freaked out by this. He says, hey, Daniel, if you can interpret this and tell me what this writing means, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to clothe you in purple. I'm going to put gold, uh, around, gold necklaces around, your, 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 um, around you, and I'm going to make you the third highest in charge of all of Babylon. Why the third highest? Because Nabonidus and uh, Belshazzar are one and two, so you're going to be the, the, the highest person who's not a king in all of Babylon. So Daniel says, hey, keep your stuff. I'm not in it for the money. I don't need the robes. I don't even need the position. But I will tell you what is written on the wall. And so now, remember this rager of a party that has been going on. Now, suddenly, it's quiet. The music is stopped. The intensity is there. People are leaning in to hear what does this message say. And Daniel begins. And Daniel begins by telling them and reminding them of a story. And the story is what we saw last week about how great King Nebuchadnezzar, once the most powerful man in the world, humbled himself turned from his pride and turned to God. And, and Daniel says that's, you know, one of the greatest moments in Babylonian history. But then he starts with the message in verse 22, and he says this, but you, Belshazzar, his son, meaning his ancestor, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. In other words, he's saying God gave you a warning. God gave you a warning, Belshazzar, and you have been missing it, and you've not humbled yourself. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines, they drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which you cannot see or hear or understand. Uh, uh, But you did not honor the God who gets this, who holds in his his hand your life and all of your ways. Therefore, he sent, uh, he sent this hand that wrote the inscription, and this is, what, uh, this is the inscription that was written. Again, the hush comes over the room, and he says this, many, many, tekel parsin. And here's what those words mean. Many, it means God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, it means you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez or, or Parsin, it's a conjugation of that word. It says, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So wow, what a powerful message that is. And when God writes on the wall to Belshazzar, your kingdom has been divided and taken away, he literally means that very night. Verse 30, it says, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. And that is the end of the Babylonian empire as we know it. From that point on, Babylon continues to decrease in influence, and the Medes and the Persians basically step up onto that world stage. In fact, Darius the Mede, and then later Cyrus uh, the the Persian, uh, start to do things in a new way and make some dramatic changes. One of the changes is eventually they're going to allow, allow people like the Jews to go back to Judah and begin to rebuild their cities and to rebuild their temples and those kind of things. We're actually going to study that as a whole church next year in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. 
Nehemiah. That'll be uh, the, the next step in kind of the history that we have been following here. So anyways, this whole story is just a fascinating piece of history. For those of you history buffs, there's tons of, of stuff in it. And we see, as with so much of Daniel, that the, the, the biblical history matches kind of this parallel track with the secular history of that time. But it also begs the question, why is this story in the Bible in the first place, right? What, what is it supposed to, to mean? What can I learn from it today? Because to me, this is one of those stories. When you see people ignoring clear warnings and then getting a consequence, this is an easy one for us to apply to other people, right? We've all seen people who've, you know, missed God's warning and, you know, they've seen the destruction because of it. We've all seen nations that have missed God's warning and because of that have have lost influence. And so it's really easy to apply to other people. But here's what I want to do today. I want us to kind of look in the mirror and I want us to see three warnings that God gave to to Belshazzar and ask what do these things mean to us. So I want to suggest three warning labels, if you will, one that goes with each one of those words that was written on the side of the wall. So the first word is mene. Mene. He says mene, mene. It means numbered, numbered. And the warning label might read like this, caution, quantities are limited talking about the number of our days. In fact, I like what Psalm 90 verse 12 says. It says, teach us to number our days and recognize how few they are. Help us to spend them as we should. Isn't that a great verse? Teach us to number our days. Because the reality is, is every day is sacred. Every day is a gift of God. And our days are few. In fact, I don't know if you knew this, but the average American lifespan works out to just over 27,000 days. And that seems like a lot, but it's not. Those days go by so quickly. And the other reality is that each day as it passes, when it passes, that day is gone. You can't get that day back. You can't save it up like you're saving vacation time or something. Every day is precious, and when it's gone, it's gone. And here's the deal. That could be either really depressing, which is not my intention here, but it also can be really empowering. Why do I say that? Because if you realize that our days are numbered and our days are few, it should inspire us in us the question, am I spending my days wisely? Am I making the most of the time that God gives to us? There's a great scripture that I connect with this um, from John chapter 10. It's where Jesus famously says that we have an enemy. And the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy in all different ways. But then he adds this, but I have come. I have come into this world so that you might have life and have it to the full, that you might have abundant life. And if you think about it, I've got these days in my life. I want to have abundant life. I don't want those days to be stealed, stolen, and destroyed. I want to, to have that fullness of life that Jesus talks about. And so that begins by leaning into that relationship with Jesus, because that's ultimately where all of this meaning is found. In fact, in the book of James, James says it like this. He says, life is like a vapor. He says, it's like a mist passing away. And his point is, so make the most of it. Don't waste your life. 
You know, for me, one of the places that I feel this the most, I feel in a lot of different ways of wanting to make the most of the time that God has given to us, but one of the places I feel it the most is as a dad, um, uh, because especially here on Father's Day, uh, a lot of you know that Janny and I are in that empty nest stage. It's still kind of new to us, but um, so our, our three kids are, are all out of the house, and, and we're loving it. We enjoy that empty nest time, but can I tell you guys a little secret? I'd go back in a second even if it meant diapers and car seats and, you know, staying up late to do homework, whatever it is, I'd go back in a second. Because those days, you know, when you're in the middle of them, you young parents, when you're in the middle of them, you think, oh, are we ever going to get through these things? But then you get on the other side and you think, wow, do I miss those? How do I restore those days? And I don't bring that up to to cause us to live with regret. This is not about living with regret. We all have the stage of life that we are in. I bring this up to encourage us to make the most of the time that you are in. And so parents and grandparents, this is kind of what I'm thinking about here, make the most of those times. And so dads, grandparents, if you've got little ones and and you come home at the end of the day and you're tired and you just want to sit on the couch and watch a TV or scroll through the internet or something like that and your child comes up to you and says, hey, could we go shoot baskets? Hey, could we go play catch? The answer is yes because you don't get that time back. If they come up to you and they say, hey, could we play dolls? Could we play dress? Whatever it is, the answer is yes, I've got time for that. If they come up to you and they say, hey, dad, could I, you know, would you drive me to this place? The answer is, well, go ask your mother at that point. But the whole idea is don't let those days be wasted away because we get so caught up in the small stuff and we miss the valuable stuff. In fact, there's a key question that goes with this warning label. And the warning or the question is this, am I living like every day is valuable? Because each day is a gift from God and it is sacred. Many, many numbered are our days. Second warning comes in the word tekel. Tekel means literally weighed. Uh, And the warning I want to suggest is this. Beware, contents may weigh less than they appear. You know, I don't know if you caught this when we read it the first time. But that message in this word to me is just haunting because this is what Daniel's message is to Belshazzar. He says, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Your life has been weighed. It's been found wanting. You see, weight is how they measured value of the things that, that mattered the most. So as you think about us in, in our world, what are the things that, that seem to matter the most in our culture? It's things like money and houses and cars and awards and achievements and status and all those kind of things. And yet as you think about those, if those sound familiar, that's because Belshazzar was chasing the very same things. In verse 23, it's not on the screen, but let me read it to you. It says this. It says, Belshazzar... You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron and wood and stone. Those things cannot see or hear or understand, but you did not honor the God who holds in your hand your life and all your ways. In other words, Belshazzar, you missed the point. You put your hope in the wrong things. And what a chilling picture it is to see Belshazzar and all of these nobles holding the goblets that were dedicated to God and making a mockery of them by toasting things that wouldn't matter or wouldn't last. 
And yet the reality is, is we do that as well. What is the sacred object that I'm talking about? I'm talking about your life. You are made in the image of God. You are precious and valuable to God. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit alive in you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? It's sacred. And yet are we living our life in a way to honor that that is sacred? Are we living it in a way that, if I could say it in the harshest way, is making a mockery of the gift that God has given to us? And so it raises the question... um, what really matters in life? First Samuel chapter 2 um, describes this. It says, the Lord is a God who knows, uh, knows, who sees and knows, and by him deeds are weighed. And it's not just our deeds. Proverbs 21 says it like this, a person may think their own ways are right, but the Lord is the one who weighs the heart. And so what this really is about is, am I putting weight on the things that are the most valuable? Am I, or am I giving weight to things in my life that really don't matter in the scheme of eternity. I've got to show you this uh, little video on this uh, because it's so powerful. Um, This is a video of three softball players for the University of Oklahoma. Uh, A friend sent this to me this week, but I actually saw it live. My jaw literally almost hit the ground when I saw this because these players are being interviewed and the University of Oklahoma softball team at this point had won like 55 games in a row and they were entering into the, the College World Series. So in other words, these girls are what, 21, 22, 23, but they had trained their whole life for this. They had lived their life, eat, drank, everything, softball, softball, softball to get to this point. And so the, the reporter recognizes that they must feel a lot of pressure going into this. They, their whole life has been devoted to this. And so he asks them a question about how are they going to find joy in the middle of this? And I want you to see a, a lesson on what they value. It's a little long, but quite honestly, the words of a 22-year-old college softball player sometimes are a little better than a preacher. And let's take a look at this. We're going to back row left. Alex Scarborough with ESPN, for, for the players, I know you talked about keeping the joy of the game, but I'm curious, it's a long season, right? And you guys have had the target on your back the entire time, the win streak being number one. How do you handle the unique pressure that comes with that? How do you keep the joy for so long when anxiety seems like a thing that could very easily set in? Well, the only way that you can have a joy that doesn't fade away is from the Lord. And any other type of joy is actually happiness that comes from circumstances and outcomes. And um, I think Coach has said this before, but joy from the Lord is really the only thing that can keep you motivated, um, uh, just in a good mindset, uh, no matter the outcomes. Thankfully, we've had a lot of success this year, but if it was the other way around, uh, joy from the Lord is the only thing that can keep you embracing those memories, moments, friendships, and all of that. So uh, I would, that's really the only, the only answer to that because there's no other way that softball can bring you that um, because of how much failure comes in it and just how much of a roller coaster the game can be. 1,000% agree with Grace Lyons. Um, I went through that my freshman year. I'd, I was so happy to win the college. I've talked about this before, but I was just so happy that we won the College World Series, but I didn't feel joy. I didn't, have, I didn't know what to do the next day. I didn't know what to do for that following week. I didn't feel filled. And I had to find Christ in that. And I think that is what makes our team so strong is that we're not afraid to lose because if it's not the end of the world if we do lose. Yes, obviously, we've worked our butts off to be here and we want to win. But it's not the end of the world because our life is in Christ and that's all that matters. Yeah, um, I think a huge thing that we've really just latched onto is eyes up. And you guys mm-hmm. see us doing this and pointing up, but we're really like fixing our eyes on Christ. And that's something where... 
like they were saying, you can't find a fulfillment in an outcome, whether it's good or bad. And um, I think that's why we're so steady in what we do and, and our love for each other and our love for the game, because we know this game is giving us the opportunity to glorify God. Mm-hmm. And um, I just think once we figured that out and that was our purpose and everyone was all in with that, um, it's really changed so much for us. And I mean, I know myself, I, I've seen so much of a growth in myself with um, once I turned to Jesus and I realized how he had changed my outlook on life, not just softball, but understanding how much I have to live for, and that's living to exemplify the kingdom. And I think that brings so much freedom. And I'm sure everyone's story is similar, but we all have those great testimonies that have really like shown how awesome it is to play for something bigger. Um, and I think that's just what brings me so much joy. And no matter the outcome, whether we get a trophy in the end or not, we're, this isn't our home. And I think that's what's amazing about it is we have so much more. We have an eternity of joy with our Father, and I'm so excited about that. And yes, I live in the moment, but I know this isn't my home. And um, no matter what, my sisters in Christ will be there with me in the end um, when we're with our, our King. So, Isn't that good? Anybody else have a new favorite college softball team? Man, did you hear that? Do you hear what values the most? Whether we win the trophy or not is not what it's about. It's about this relationship with Christ. These girls powerfully uh, give, give kind of a, a life application to Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus says this. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and vermin don't destroy and where thieves do not, cannot break in and steal. You guys, the key question here is, do I value the things that God values? And if you need a little help answering that question, the way you do that is you look at where you're spending your time. Look at where you're spending your money. Look at where you're giving your mental energy, your focus, uh, all of those things, your thought life. Do I value the things that God values the most? Because the warning is this. Contents, they may, appear, uh, they may weigh less or appear less um, than they appear. Third one is this, and we're going to wrap it up here real quick. Uh, it comes from the word Perez, and that means divided, divided. And the warning label might read like this. Danger, there are side effects. Right? Because in the story, King Belshazzar's time was up. There was no way he could continue to live the way that he was living and not experience some consequences, not experience some side effects. And the same is true for you and I today. We need to be aware that the way we live, good and bad, has side effects, has consequences to it. The Bible speaks about this as the principle of reaping and sowing. The Apostle Apostle Paul describes this in such a powerful way in Galatians 6. He says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh is going to reap destruction. But whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And you guys, Belshazzar had definitely been sowing to please the flesh. And so God had warned him time and time again until ultimately there is this consequence of his destruction. And it brings us to kind of the final question that I want to ask, and that is this, is your life matters to God? Are you making the most of it? Are you hearing the warnings? Because in each of our minds, in each of our hearts, God gives us warnings. It's his voice calling to us.
Hey, for those of you who kind of like the history of this, let me just kind of wrap it up by, by telling this story. Because as I mentioned, there's a lot of secular history that goes with this. And there's a, a Greek historian by the name of uh, Herodias. And Herodias actually writes quite a bit about this time. I read over it some of this week. It's just fascinating stuff. Because here's the thing. Remember I told you that the, the army, the Medes and the Persian armies were surrounding Babylon. But if you were here last week, Steve showed some examples of the city of Babylon. It's had like 70 foot high walls, 100-foot high walls. It was like an impenetrable city. So even though all the soldiers were there, how were they going to get in to Babylon? And so here's what Darius the Mede decides to do. Uh, Because through the city of Babylon, not only are these high walls, but the Euphrates River runs right through the middle of it. And so Darius and his army go upstream and the Euphrates River, and they begin to divert the river, and they begin to dam it up. And so slowly but surely, the water level starts to drop. And every day, the Euphrates River that runs right through the middle of Babylon starts to get lower and lower and lower until finally the army has a way. They just march right in through now these kind of uh, more available uh, river along the, the sides of the river. And that's how they go in to Belshazzar's palace in what we just read here. Herodias is this Greek historian. He writes with almost a mockery of the Babylonian people who sat there and their river went down every day and nobody noticed and nobody called it into question. He said they were so busy, focused on all of the extravagances of Babylonian culture that they missed, he doesn't call it this, but I'll say it this, they missed God's warning. And so my question for you and for me today is, Do you hear what God's warning is? He's got something that he's calling you to. All of us can think of somewhere where God's calling us to more. God's calling us to deeper. God's calling us to know him. Here's the the final so what. And it's a verse out of the book of Hebrews that says this. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Belshazzar hardened his heart and it cost him everything. Will your heart be soft to the voice of God? Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for these ancient stories, Father, that teach us such valuable lessons. And so I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters, because this is kind of a heavy topic for us to talk about, hearing the, the voice of God warning us that, that our lives are, are weighed, that you've got a plan for our lives, Father. And so I pray that you would give us the courage not to harden our hearts, but to come to, with a soft heart to these things. Teach us, Lord. Give us the courage to follow where you would lead all around this room, all across this facility, Lord. Would you be working in people's hearts to follow after you on this day? And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.